0: Hey, uh, there in podcast land, this is Jim coming to you during the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, hi, wherever you are, I hope you are healthy, you and yours. Um, so I have started recording these things uh, in the shelter-in-place during the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, I find it's useful, actually, it's just kind of... I find it therapeutic to just talk through things um, but a very good way for me to pass the time. See, i don't live with anyone uh i i just been kind of on my own for the past six weeks and so i find that recording these things for podcasting is actually a very very therapeutic way of passing the time all this to say if, you, if you've never tried it i would encourage you to give it a shot just start recording start talking, see where it goes. And I I wanted to, today, this one, I want to get to talking about something that's more near and dear to my heart. And that would be tech. Um, I, I live in the, in San Francisco in the Bay area. I've been here for about four years and I ended up here because like so many people here, I am a software developer. Uh, I, have spent the last three and a half years working at a tech company i i, I work te- technically i worked at one of those genetic testing companies where you can send off your spit and it gets sequenced and um it's probably one you've heard of uh, i i just actually left that job so mid-february i gave notice um end of february i i left it was my last day and the intent was to take some time to try and figure out what comes next, what should my next job be, what's the next move uh, and it, I of course, as you know um, about a week later uh, coronavirus really started emerging in two weeks into my sabbatical uh, it, the, the mandatory shelter in place was issued by the mayor of San Francisco, so like so many of us, I, I am currently unemployed, uh, sitting around, yeah, just being very introspective, watching a lot of TV, reading a lot of books. But I, 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 I have been reflecting on how, how the pandemic itself has been affecting our relationship with technology. I guess I want to sort of just verbally meander around that for a while in considering the implications, um, I've, I've been programming been a computer programmer in some capacity for about 15 years now. And I actually was talking to my, one of my friends from high school yesterday, uh, and I, I originally got started programming largely because of him. He sort of introduced me to it in about 2005. Uh He himself was a computer engineering major. He has a master's degree in this. And he's been doing it from a very, very young age. He got into it in, in I think, the early 90s. He started programming, started building computers. He knows things very, very well. And he got into it long before you could have imagined that technology would ever look anything like this. I, I think if you were programming in the eighties, it, it wasn't immediately clear that it was ever going to get to this point. Uh, I got into it in 2005, it was a little bit, the writing was more on the wall, a little bit less ambiguous. Um, but yeah, the, things have changed a lot. Like I, I realized reflecting on this, the reasons I got into technology in originally around 2005 were, it was much, much different. The world has changed significantly. And I, I think I have changed significantly too. I think my values are different. I think my priorities, I think my overall arc in life might have shifted in that time. It's, I, I guess there's some some questions to tease out here. Yeah, so I, I guess in broad strokes, I, I do remember, I became very, very interested in programming Largely because I was not a computer science major. I never studied it. If I ever studied it, it was just self-taught. You learn algorithms, data structures. At some point, I took it on myself to learn that. I was working as a web developer and I realized you want to actually advance, you have to know these things. You know, you, you don't use the math or algorithms day to day as a programmer, but I I think you need to at least have learned them once. Even if you learn them and then forget them, I I think it does make you a better uh, programmer. But I I studied business in college. I went to a university that had a very good business school. For that reason, I kind of gravitated towards uh, a, a business major. And so I was working in a cubicle. I was basically some kind of spreadsheet monkey. And I realized most of my job could easily be programmed. If I learned how to use computers very, very well, and this is Microsoft stuff at the time, that I, I really wouldn't have to do a lot of the more repetitive and laborious parts of what I was being asked to do. And the I was lucky because my first job, like I, my bosses were not opposed to this. They were very in favor of me spending some time making things easier for myself and learning um, how to program. And, and <clears throat> I told them at some point, I, I came back to them and said, "Look, look, there, there's a lot of these things that took a lot of my time. I, I now have computers doing them for me." Like I have this program that just does this thing. Like it, it's not filling my days anymore. And they're like, "Well, cool. Do what you want with the surplus." And so I just kept learning more and more about coding. It ended up being I could kind of educate myself on the clock, uh, and ended up jumping into a you know actual programming career a couple of years later, largely because I think I was allowed to do that. I was certainly studying on my own time as well, but it it didn't hurt to have that extra um, time to spend. But I I remember I I wanted to get into it for that reason. And I I also saw the broader trend of where technology was going. And it, it looked very, very different than it does today, like I said, it was Google had just IPO'd. Uh Facebook was just over a year old. Like most people had just gotten Facebook. And it wasn't most people that were on Facebook. Like it was just now becoming something that more universities than just the elite Ivy League ones or Stanford now had access to. It had just rolled out to the university I went to. As an alumni, I was able to get on there, but you still needed a .edu address for what was then a a short list of uh, universities. I don't don't think you could register with just any hotmail.com or aol.com email address. So it was still this new thing that was sort of ill-defined. It was kind of like, oh, the new way of staying connected. Amazon was still kind of the alternative. People are still shopping out at retail shops, and Amazon is kind of this cheaper online, just massive marketplace of, of things that's very convenient. But it's it's not the main way people are acquiring things. And Google is, the, I, I don't think there's an offline equivalent of Google, but that's, that's still nascent compared to what it is today. I, I think they're, they're still in the process of figuring out, okay, AdWords is actually a way we can really take this thing to the top. This is how we make money. And we can use it to fund all kinds of interesting technical things. So it, it, I think the picture I'm trying to paint here is that there? There is kind of this. I don't want to say counter-cultural element to technology, but th- there kind of is. It's kind of like there. There are established methods of doing things. There are established organizations and institutions. Like you could say, like look at the department stores. You have you know, Sears, Kmart, Penny, Saks Fifth Avenue, Nordstroms. Macy's, which might have been Marshall Fields at the time. hell, might have still been Hudson's at that point. I don't remember when that transition happened. But people are still going out. you, You kind of see it like this is the way people have always shopped. And there's this new kind of alternative to it, which is better and more efficient in many ways. But it still feels like the underdog. Yeah, <clears throat> I think that's kind of the spirit of this. I think that you kind of, it seems like the creation myth behind any company is like, it's the underdog that manages to succeed despite incredible odds. I think we like these stories, like culturally, we, we do like to root for the underdog. And personally, I, I did like it for that reason. I liked, I was, I started learning how to build websites. I was using ASP.NET and it was 2.0 and C-sharp, 2005 at the time, the Microsoft stack and SQL server and HTML, CSS, JavaScript, like all this, learn all of this. I want to learn how to build things because I see the potential for, you, you, you could conceivably found a company yourself. I tried to do that on a couple of occasions. I had the hubris early on to think that I had the potential to do that. Like, that was going to be easy. Uh, one of the first projects I worked on was an old, it basically uh, somebody had the idea and I worked with him to build it, to make a job searching site like monster.com where you would create a profile for yourself. Basically, Monster Meets MySpace. You have a profile page. You put your stuff on there. And it's like a social network, but professional. And this is before LinkedIn came along. Yeah. We called this, this is just how little I, I any of us knew about branding or marketing. We called it Work Tooth. Absolutely abysmal. Like I, I feel like most of the time we spent trying to figure out how to build tech companies was like 80% trying to come up with a name and 20% actually programming. The name, you have to have the dot-com. It has to be available. And, you know, it's, it's got to be interesting and good and edgy and weird. And even despite all that effort, it's like we, we couldn't come up with anything good. Work tooth. Oh, that's awful to think about that now. Anyway, if if it wasn't, you're gonna start something for yourself, you, you don't found a company, you're not the founder or creator of something new, then it could be you just, you end up getting a job and you contribute to something that's novel and new. It's pushing the world in new directions. It's pushing boundaries. It's contributing to the underdog. It's contributing to the counterculture, at least this alternative uh, means of doing things. It seems like there was massive potential in that. And if it wasn't possible to achieve social change with it, uh, it seemed like that was coming. Even if it was only businesses figuring out how to do things, even if it was only social aspects, people connecting with each other on Facebook, eventually nonprofits, governments are going to find their way into using this. If you know how to program, eventually you'll get to a point where you can help contribute on that front as well. The potential is obviously that 2005, it's very, very easy to see where this is headed. Even if you don't know exactly what it looks like. But I think what's different now, and this has sort of materialized over the past few years, is that it's, it's not as though these large companies are the underdog that are in the process of becoming alternatives to the more traditional approaches to whatever their respective uh, functions are. They, they, they have basically become the de facto large 800 pound gorilla in the room. Facebook is the social network. Amazon is the place to buy things. Uh, We've seen like the the opposite, like basically local stores close down because people are now doing their shopping online. And so it's, I am far from being a revolutionary. I am not somebody who would. If you talked to me in 2005, I would have not, I would not have said like, well, I want Borders to die. I don't want to get rid of Barnes and Noble. I'm not interested in eliminating Best Buy or eliminating shopping malls or department stores, but it's, it's, you could look at how those industries have consolidated. There were very large players in any given, any given industry, any given market. And you kind of look at the internet and you say, well, look, this is an alternative. And that does shift the power a little bit. It balances it out. I think the balance was staggered one way in 2005. And I think it shifted so that it's very much staggered the other way. So I am certainly not anti-Amazon. I am not saying storm the castle and let's pull Jeff Bezos off his throne. It's all good. I just sense that, like, they're now kind of the behemoth, and I, to the extent that I'd like there to be balance, I really would like there there to be more of a shift in power the other way. And you you do see that happening. I I actually am very, I'm fascinated by the fact that. So I, I guess this this is a simplification, but I, I imagine. I don't know the history here, but like, let's say you take the beer industry as an example, as one example, like, so at some point Budweiser starts as, I don't know where Budweiser started or when, but it, it's one person or a few people brewing beer for themselves, then probably becomes their community it ends up expanding. It ends up becoming this, this global brand of beer. And at some point it progresses to the point where you you have, it's this big operation, there's economies of scale, everybody working for it is specialized in their, in their ways. And I guess you're either a a chemist, like you're, you're going in and working on in the headquarters in like a lab somewhere, but most of it is very blue collar. It's like you're going into the factory and you're hauling barley around and running the machines you're basically like overseeing some part of the process of brewing the beer somewhere. It becomes very standardized. You just, you're following a recipe to produce this thing at mass. It's not a job that has a lot of glamor. It's not something that you're, you would brag about necessarily. And so this, what you get now is you see millennials embracing a job like brewing beer that typically was regarded as blue collar and not that glamorous, but they're putting like the artisanal spin on it. They're creating like niche micro, like it's a special beer that you can only get here. It's like you you buy this one batch and it will never be, produce this way exactly again. It's just this limited time thing. And, and they're, they're embracing this as a, a means of pride. People are taking pride in their work. They're starting like little microbreweries and selling these things. And people are willing to pay a premium to buy these things instead of Budweiser because it's it's special. And that's not the only industry that's happening. in, like butchers, people doing artisanal meat, artisanal bread shops, artisanal coffee roasters. People are embracing the notion of you make something special. People are willing to pay a premium for it. And it doesn't necessarily have to be that you want to scale up your operations in a franchisable way. We're just content to like, I have my business and that's, that's enough. You don't expand to take over the whole world. And so you, you do see that like the, this is emerging. There's different levels of success. You see some places open and they close, they don't quite make it. Um, but it, it is interesting to see that effect. Getting back to the pandemic, though, I I think considering how you want to shift the balance and power, as an individual, how can you do that? There's this this concept of voting with your wallet. I think there is something to that. I've always made some effort to put that into practice. I will go to independent bookstores or Barnes & Noble. To acquire something that I want. If there's something I want that I can get at an independent bookstore, I will go to the independent bookstore and I will buy it. And I do that on a regular basis. Books are the books. The so books are what I'm going to talk about. That's the one thing I have way too many of. I live in a very small one-bedroom apartment in San Francisco. I have a bed, a computer, a TV. Some stuff in the kitchen to prepare food with. Certainly not a lot. I don't know how to cook. And then I have a bunch of books. I'm basically drowning in books. It's like my one guilty pleasure. The thing I I, I spend way too much on these things. Um, so they don't read enough to justify owning this many books. But I like to be surrounded by ideas that I can just stumble upon as easily as opening some book so it, I will go out of my way to if I, if I want to acquire something if I can do it not on Amazon I will definitely do that because I, I do not want it to be everything comes from Amazon I don't want it to 10 years from now 15 years from now I don't want that to be like the only option because we've all just gone that way because it's the cheapest easiest route for us I'll go get the exercise I'll spend a little bit extra money to get something that I want and to like have an interaction with a human being who's not stuffing stuff into boxes in a warehouse Um, yeah that's a whole other question I haven't really sorted out Amazon warehouses man I wonder about that, (laughs) but with the current pandemic, and this is something I talked about a little bit with my, my friend from high school yesterday is that as, as much as I have avoided having groceries delivered to me and I, I will go out and buy something from an independent shop and I don't take Uber, like I will walk. Uh, I, uh, basically I'll walk anywhere if I have the chance I will. I avoid the ride sharing services I don't even have the apps on my phone Like I have accounts I can install them if I need to in an emergency but I don't ever use them uh, I, I make an effort to always do the hard thing to avoid leaning on technological alternatives that might make me complacent I, I actually never, I never have used a food delivery service. I've never had I, DoorDash. I, are they one of those services where you, you order from a restaurant, somebody goes and picks it up and delivers it to you? I, I don't know what any of these things are. There's like grocery delivery, and then there's meals from a restaurant delivery. I've never done either one of those. And I just imagine it's because like, I saw that old movie Wally where you end up with the humans are just like in these chairs that kind of zip them around. They're looking at little screens dangling above them and they're just horribly out of shape. Like it can't take care of themselves. The whole like getting your food delivered to you just seems like when, when, when that concept first emerged, I was like, that just seems like the first step I'm like the slope is starting to like slope down way too steeply towards that. This could go out of control. This could spiral down very, very quickly if if you don't keep an eye on things. So I really, I haven't embraced that sort of thing. I don't want everything to just be delivered to me. Like let let me use my muscles a little bit, like get out and get the things and carry them home for myself. Someday I'm going to be old and infirm. I won't be able to do that. But for now, as long as I can, spend a little bit of time doing this. Even if I could specialize, if I if I just did nothing but be a software guy for most of my time, and I like outsourced going to get somebody pay somebody to bring me my groceries. Yeah, okay. Economically, that makes more sense. But I'm not sure like optimizing for economics makes sense in that case. I, I don't know if that is what you want to optimize for. I don't know if that should be the goal. I don't know. Probably sound very serious, don't I? I'm a very serious person. I wish I had a better, wish I brought levity to things. They're just cracking jokes off the cuff. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, uh, so the pandemic. Um, It seems to me that as much as I have sought to resist this, and I imagine that there are other people who have felt the same way, I don't think what I'm feeling is at all unique. Nothing that I'm saying is... I think a lot of people would agree with me. I think a lot of people have been saying these sorts of things. But with the pandemic, it's now that the online options are now largely our only option. If you were making a point of going out and getting toiletries from like a corner drugstore for yourself, even if it's paying a little bit more and you got to walk, that's really not an option right now. And so we have this extended period of time where we're all kind of like locked in our homes, not leaving. We have food delivered to us. We have groceries delivered to us. Just everything comes from like online sources. I'm wondering what lessons we are learning from this that we may not unlearn. This is also not a novel complaint or question or concern. I, I, I've seen people discussing this online. I've seen articles of people talking about this. But yeah, we, we are in the process of potentially forming habits that we may not break once this pandemic ends. And I I don't even think it's going to be once the, uh, once life resumes, we get back to normal. I don't think normal right away looks like what life was like before this. I, I don't think we go back to where we were in January earlier this year. I think we kind of slowly work our way up the hill back towards what we would think of as normal. Like it's going to happen in stages. I hear saying that there's going to be a phase where phase one is people can go out again. They can get together in groups of 10 or less. People can go back to their jobs. And that's only for people who are not at risk members of the population. Phase two is Basically, one degree beyond that i don't remember the details. Phase three is like it effectively we're still or pretty much back to normal. I think there's still some restrictions in phase three, but it's essentially returned to what you could think of as the baseline so i I don't know if it's if we will ease ourselves back into our habits, people will just rush out and and Resume what they were doing I, I i I like one example it's a small one but i I used to drink those canned bubbly waters like lacroix. I used to drink a lot of those um, I, I I would just have a ridiculous number of cans in a recycling container in my apartment. I would just fill it up on a weekend day. I could go through. More than 12. Just sitting around at home, working, reading. I would pound so many of those. I don't, I don't know what the. It's like it's like it's water, carbonated water, and essences. I have no idea what those essences are, but I feel like there's got to be something addictive in there. I, I gave those up for the. As soon as it became clear to me that, okay, you, we're going to be sheltering in place. You're going to have to figure out what is worth going out and buying and then hauling up the stairs to your apartment. It became clear to me pretty soon that like the easiest thing to sacrifice uh would be the bubbly waters and cans. Just don't buy those anymore. So I cut those out. I, I feel like I had... There were three or four days where I, I was not drinking those. Just went cold turkey. And it I, there was some serious withdrawal symptoms. It might have just been the social isolate. Maybe it was the fact that I wasn't getting out and walking and seeing people. Uh, but I, I, I feel like there's something in those bubbly water. But anyway, so I have not been drinking the bubbly water for, it's been six, seven weeks now. I'm off of it. It's, I've broken the habit. And I, I really am not sure if when this is all over, I'm going to go back and start buying them again. I, I do remember why I started drinking them in the first place. It's really a silly thing to spend money on. It's certainly some luxury you could, you could spoil yourself with, but it, I, I drink tea and just water, tap water now. And that, that really does just fine. I don't see the the point of getting back to uh, splurging for the the bubbly water, and so I, that's a small thing, but I, I I do it's not the only element in my life where that's the case. There's other things I've cut out, and I recognize now, yeah, you probably don't need to go back to acquiring those or you don't need to get back to that spending habit. You don't need that thing. I have really learned how to trim a lot of fat, uh, out of what I spend. I like, I think budget wise, this has really forced me to get lean. And this is certainly not me alone. I think this is almost everyone right now. And so there's the, there is the notion of, okay, how are you acquiring things? Where are you going for things? Yes, we're, we're getting them from like the online sources just this habit of like, you can just stay in your little bubble and have things brought to you. We are learning that. So it's a question of where are you spending your money? Who, where are the, where is the money going to? Who are you, who are you purchasing from? And then there's the question of, okay, we're all learning how to spend less money. His overall consumption just, going to decrease. Do we come out of this with a a massive contraction in overall consumer spending? People have pointed out that like the current economic problem that you see like the Dow Jones S&P 500 going down. It does make sense. It's happening not because of any fundamental problem with the economy or the markets or anything Theoretically, once this is over, things could resume and we will get back to normal. I'm not convinced that's exactly the case. I'm not, I don't know if we come out of this with the same kind of, I don't know, mental habits that we've had before. It's not that the, the economy is broken. It's just that right now it's on hold. But when we resume, I, I, I wonder just how, I don't know, I wonder how we emerge from this. I wonder what happens after this. I, I can't claim to know. We probably will return to some sort of equilibrium. I have thought about this. Like, it, human beings are not good at using surplus as well. Yeah, you take, like, my example of, so I buy a lot of books, right? And I, I do, I, I used to buy books before there was Amazon. It used to be like, I'm going to go out to a bookstore and get things. And it really was pretty amazing when you you find out, okay, you can actually go on this website and order anything you want. Selection is unlimited. And it's cheaper. Everything is much, much cheaper. So something like that, if you have cheaper alternatives, then that increases your purchasing power. Now, you could do two things with that. It could be that you buy the same amount of things as you were buying before, but you just you have more money left over. Or psychologically, you say, well, now that I have more purchasing power, I can just buy more stuff. I'm like most human beings. I did the latter. I, was like, I might as well buy three books instead of two because it, it would be the same amount I'm spending. This is probably why I, I have uh, a book buying problem. It's just, it just becomes so easy to read. It's just, yeah, it's so easy to do. And so it, it might be that that's what we snap back to. Maybe I, maybe I do get back to LaCroix. Maybe I, at some point, two months from now, I'm in the store and I'm looking at it. You know what? I'm just going to spoil myself and treat myself this one time, treat myself. And it, I just, I fall back into it. Maybe there's nothing to worry about here. I don't know. But I, you know, I do kind of wonder exactly how you, where, where can we go? from here because i think it is true that people will learn okay i i can i really can just stay in my bubble and i can have things brought to me and that's very convenient it, it could be like how many how many companies are going to immediately say okay you have to come back into the office This has been this has been brought up before but what what if people have been talking about this for a long time but if you want to combat climate change it's not the worst idea to encourage people to work from home to encourage companies to not have people commute into an office every day I I I, I do wonder if companies are going to learn from this that they can actually operate uh, remotely, entirely remotely, and still function. And I'm, I'm talking about like I'm, of course, biased in favor of tech. I I I do wonder, really, how it's going with the company I just left. I haven't spoken to anyone there at great length, but I, I wonder how 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 Google is functioning, for example, or how Facebook is functioning. How are the average companies that can have their workforce work remotely, how how is that working? Does that seem sustainable or are they just getting by? And so I I do wonder if we emerge from this with the realization that, oh yeah, we can have our employees work remotely. Maybe people realize they don't need cars as much as they thought We, we could get rid of one car and just have the one. don't need to spend as much money on gas. But outside of tech companies uh, there obviously are people who will go back to working as normal. Um, But if things don't change and even if Even if not in light of the pandemic, you you would look at something like Amazon and say, you know, this is maybe taking too much of our time and attention and too much of our disposable income is allocated to this one single company. I don't know exactly how you would go about, I don't know, shifting the balance back towards independent businesses. It's it's a very hard question to answer. I don't think I have a a solution to this problem. I think what I would like to see is more of the artisanal stuff. I'm not much of a beer drinker, but if I'm going to drink beer, I would very much prefer to go to a microbrewery and buy one really nice, sour beer than to buy a six pack of of something you could get at the grocery store for the same price I'd like to see more of that I would like to see more people figuring out how to differentiate how to to come up with novel retail experiences that make people naturally want to go to a place and buy things uh, instead of going online and b- beer you know, meat bread th- these are maybe things that are not great examples because those are things you can you can make those products special you you can differentiate beer it, it's easy to make a sour beer a single batch that's limited edition limited time people go pay a premium for it it's something alternative to Budweiser that is worth paying more for. But something like like a bookstore though, I don't know what incentive people have outside of like just understanding the economics of it and not wanting Amazon to become the only player in town. What incentive do people have really to go to a bookstore and buy A book for more money than they could get it online. A book is a. If you buy *Crime and Punishment* on Amazon, it's going to be the same exact thing that you would, same exact copy of the of *Crime and Punishment* that you would buy at an independent bookstore. There, 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 there's no difference between the two. The only difference is in, is in the experience you would have. in acquiring the book. It's like, you'd have to make a bookstore that just feels so great, so magical that people want to go there. It's typically not the case. Most, most bookstores are very, why would you go to an independent bookstore instead of Barnes and Noble? Go to the little cramped bookshop with the, uh, the old book smell, with the worst selection. It's the same price. aisles are really narrow. Maybe the employees are more helpful. I don't even think like better customer service is enough of a differentiator. But what is it that incentivizes people to do this? I, I really, I don't know. It's an interesting question to ponder. Um, I would like to see more of that. that. That is I think what I would like to support. I would like to see more independent shops opening up and really figuring out creatively how to sell things in a way that people want to go to them and spend more money. Now, I'm totally willing to do that. It's like, okay, go to the bookstore, buy things, and just buy fewer books than you would if you were purchasing online. one cup of coffee instead of just, you know, drinking a whole pot. Huh. I'll tell you where I think there's potential out there. Uh, So I'm very concerned about, well, I'm, I'm aware of, I'm not sure how actively concerned I am. About the middle parts of the United States, uh, we have what are called food deserts, which are basically places where people people are limited in their 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 options as what they as far as what they can purchase to eat and, and the concern is that the things are generally not healthy options you you end up with things that for economic or logistic reasons are are very heavily processed uh, loaded with sugar and if part of that is it's it, it's what's what's on the demand side. people would rather drink soda um, than they would something i I don't know what a healthy alternative like not orange juice that's just sugar as well. Well, I guess orange juice is probably better than Coca-Cola. But people are consuming like Cheetos instead of, say, buying a banana or buying produce. There's there's a lack lack of access to fresh food. And, And part of it is because there's not a demand for that kind of produce in those areas. And so suppliers just haven't gone there. And I I don't think it's it's a political thing. I don't think it's like um, you can clearly delineate this whole thing along partisan political lines. But I, I think it, the the whole notion of like whole foods of being okay here's here's a place where you can go get organic produce. You'll pay a premium for something organic or or just regular produce. I think that's, that's much more of kind of a blue state sort of thing. It's like you're thinking about conscientiously how what kind of food are you going to buy? What's your diet going to be? I feel like that's much more of a you know, liberal town sort of thing. It's something that arises around universities and uh, large metropolitan areas which tend to skew in that direction. Now, I think the food deserts—you're—you're you're, you're looking more at more rural areas, where you don't have high concentrations of, of people. And so I I think that. I think that there's an opportunity here business-wise. I think that somebody will eventually figure out how to market the idea of Whole Foods to the segment of the population that so far has not been interested in it. The people out in the food deserts who are not eating well, who have a really poor diet. Go in there, go into those places, open up a store, which is something like Whole Foods, but with a different message. You figure out how to market this, you pitch it and say like, yeah, if, if you if you want healthy food, don't go to Stuckey's or Seven or wherever people are buying their food in these really out of the way places, like a smaller rural communities. Like like here here is a place where you can get it. It's not too expensive. You sell them on the idea that it's good to eat something green instead of something crunchy and processed out of a bag if you can somehow figure out how to market and brand that to that segment of the population that would otherwise look cynically on Whole Foods I, I think you have the potential to create a franchisable business um, that would also be like helping people achieve a better diet i think the challenge is marketing i think you have to sell people on it i don't think you just you just go in there and start selling mangoes and people are like oh we've we've wanted mangoes like we just can't get them i don't think people are aware that they should be eating mangoes or want to if the demand were there i think it'd be much much easier i think the the supply has to figure out how to create the demand Probably any number of ways you could you could do that. I don't I don't know. Anyway, I do think there's something in there. I think there's a large segment of the population. If you if you do, this is imperfect. Like I said, it, it's not a Republican or Democrat thing. But I feel like there there are a whole lot of industries that tend to sort of fall in you know blue state regions. That I think the red state people like more conservatives in rural areas look on very cynically. Like really, you're spending your money on that. Like, like that's ridiculous. And so I I think there is merit to some of these things that, that would have merit to the people who look on them cynically and don't embrace them. But if you could figure out how to, I don't know, show to them the ways in which it would be beneficial to them, for them to embrace these things. You could build any number of businesses around that. Food happens to be the one I'm most interested in. It's the one I'm personally, uh, very passionate about, but it could be any number of things. What kind of beer are people drinking out in, in small rural communities? I don't know. I think there's something there, though. Definitely untapped markets. I, there's something I, I like this quote from uh, Philip Kotler. Who's one of the mar- if you if you ever taken a marketing class, he probably read one of his textbooks. He's like one of those guys. He says you you don't industrialize a country by going in and building factories. You do it by going in and building markets. I, I, if you, I, if you're cynical, you could look at that and say, well, isn't that just, you're going in and telling people that they need things that they don't really need. Yeah, yeah, that, that could be it. You, You could tell people they need something that they don't just because you wanna make a buck a pet rock, some cheap plastic thing made in China that happens to be trendy. People buy it, keep it around for two years and then throw it in a landfill. But I, th- those are, that's not the only thing you could create a market for. Th- there are so many problems in this country. I, I mean, food is an easy one because it taps into health. I, 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 outside of exercise, I don't know what you could possibly decide to do. What decision you can make other than what you consume that would affect your health more, it seems to be the most important decision. And we are not succeeding at that. There's an old joke from comedian, uh, Bill Hicks. He was like, "Why is it that people in the United States like snap and think that they're Jesus? Like, why why don't more people snap and just think that they're Buddha? Like, particularly in America, where more people resemble Buddha than Jesus? Like, we're really not healthy as a country." And I, I. I think you could you could probably proliferate some sort of you could build a message around addressing that problem if you manage to proliferate a successful idea of how to uh, change your lifestyle I guess, I guess this is what the people sell things like the Thighmaster on late night TV I guess this is what they're trying to tap into fitness that's i think that's a big one how can you get fit what's a tool you can get what's what's the thing you can buy that will get you into the habit of staying fit or just make you fit i don't know i don't i, I haven't really touched upon this directly i think it's i think it is sugar I think sugar is is the main problem we have. Everything has sugar in it. Even things that are ostensibly healthy for you, they they, they seem to have a lot of sugar in them. I didn't know this, till so, Like for many many years, I just bought things like I'd buy a granola bar. I'm like this is healthy. It has oats in it and stuff. It, it's you look at the the label. It's like it's mostly sugar. this is the reason it's so appealing. this is the reason we want to eat these things it It's just somebody told me one I don't know if I buy this, but they said that sugar is more addictive than cocaine, you more addictive than heroin like if you're in the habit of just consuming sugar if it's in the things that you are eating three meals a day and you do that for years i i i i, I do imagine it is pretty difficult to get off of that. I've personally, I've actually found that like sugar consumption is correlated with really. I am not like I do not feel good mentally. I do not feel happy when when I eat a lot of sugar and then go off of it, or I'm just in the in the habit of consuming a lot of sugar. That is like that has a direct effect on my mental health. That that's anecdotal for me. But I don't have the conceit to think that it's true for me. It must be true only for me. It probably applies to other people. Yeah, sugar is a, it's just in everything. But it tastes good. I'm not going to deny that. I, I wish I had some sugar right now. Some milk chocolate loaded up with yeah, no one, no one listens to me. I'm like, I have like some chocolate bars in my cabinet. They're like, 99% cocoa or 100% cocoa. This, this is the kind of guy I am. Somebody says like, hey, do you have any chocolate? I'm like, yeah. I give them that. They're like, you, you're out of your mind. Well, I don't want that. I said chocolate. Well, yeah, chocolate. No, no, not this. <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I, if you're listening this far, you, you must understand. Like, I'm a pretty boring individual. You kind of have to be a boring individual. I feel like it, it's it's so weird that in this country now, in order to be a healthy person, you have to kind of get away from the norm. It, it's it's circumstantial for me. I like I left. I lived in Southern California before this. Four years ago, I moved to the Bay Area because I wanted to work in tech. And it's, it's kind of like I haven't really established a social life up here. That's one that's consistent or very deep. I, I used to have that. It used to be just like, okay, we're, we're all just going to go out to dinner to hang out. Cause yeah, you know, I had, I had friends in the community, you know, um, I, I moved away from that. And I haven't really established anything like that in San Francisco. I guess the only way I got any awareness of, okay, you have to watch what you eat because that affects how you're thinking, that only dawned on me once I got away from the habit of going out to eat all the time. Or you're not focused on your food, you're focused on going out and just you go grocery shop and buy the things you've always bought just because it is habit and you buy these things they have a lot of sugar take them home eat them they taste good but maybe you think they're healthy that they're maybe not the best for you I didn't realize any of that it, it's you kind of have to be like a like an offbeat loner because she was not quite integrated socially into society to Cause yeah, I don't know. If, I, if as soon as I get back out there, like I've been, I've been kind of a loner for reasons. But I am getting. I, I was trying to get back out there socially before coronavirus hit. Once I reestablish that, I I, I don't think I want to be that that guy who's like showing up. Like I'm gonna have a salad, you know, and you guys should all eat salad because there's too much sugar and everything. Like it's just not. That's not who I am. I don't, I don't push my values on other people. I like to tell the story, like, you know, here's what I did and here's, it worked for me and here's why I think that is. But I, I'm not, it's a very, very slippery slope. If you start going around telling other people, here's the way you should live your life. First of all, I think you got to. I think you got to really know. Like if, if I was a nutritionist, I, I, I don't really know what I'm talking about here. You know, don't take whatever I'm saying as gospel. We certainly can't avoid all sugar. <laughs> but you know, you know, I'm not. I'm not a nutritionist. I don't have expertise in these things. I'm kind of just, meant, just wandering around. Um, you know, the economics, the technology, how, diet, what exactly is happening right now? How do we emerge from it? What are some more long-term problems? How could we, that's all I'm t- I'm just, I'm just thinking out loud. I certainly am not an expert. And I, I really, I really don't like offering my opinion, especially unsolicited, to people about things that I know really know nothing about. I think that's the secret. Like when I was young, you, when you're young, you want to like change the world. I'm like 37 now, and I'm, I'm just like I've I figured out what works for me, and that's good enough. I don't feel this maternal impulse to go out and try and fix the rest of the world. I do wish I I could, though. I certainly would like people to have a better quality of life. But, you know, really, how much can you really do? I don't know. This is getting away from, I guess, the the core topic of tech. But, well, actually, maybe not. I have been reading, since I'm locked in, I've been doing a lot of reading, and I have been studying uh, the works of Napoleon Hill. Napoleon Hill is, I think, best known for uh, think and Grow Rich is the book that he wrote. Now, I think a lot of people have come to uh, to know about his work because Rhonda Rhonda Burns, I think, is the author. Wrote a book called The Secret, maybe fifteen years ago, and it draws on ideas from from his books. And I. I I, I remember reading The Secret a long time ago, if for no other reason than to just have an understanding of why I could despise it. I, I, I'm not sure that there's a whole lot to that work. I think it's it was just opportunistic self help uh drive. If if it helps you or has helped you, cool. But I, I it was not deep enough for me to find useful. Just me being pretentious. But even the title Think and Grow Rich, like his most popular book, even that seems suspect. Like, really, you you can just sit there and think and it's going to bring you wealth. It's a very easy way to sell a book. I mean, it's kind of like you just... Drink this thing and sit on the couch and watch TV, and the fat will just melt away. It's like a really bad late infomercial, right there in the title of, of the book. I certainly wouldn't recommend that one. I think the work that he's best known for is the Law of Success. And the 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 history behind this work is interesting. It, it's apparently Andrew Carnegie had this idea in his head that he had been successful and he knew peers of his who had been successful, like fellow barons of industry. And he was like, "The, the methods, he's like, there must be a pattern here. There must be things that people who are successful in life, financially or otherwise, this isn't necessarily about money, but people who manage to achieve goals that they set out to achieve. They, they, they are successful in some measure. There must be a formula to it. There must be a, a strategy or a pattern. And so Andrew Carnegie hired Napoleon Hill. He retained him to do a long-term book project. I don't think he paid him, but I think he said I will give you access to people in my network. I will, I will set you up with interviews. You can learn from them and I want you to compile a work that says here is how here here, here are what successful people do and so th- that that is the law of success it's a I think there are 16 steps to it chapters that kind of they don't quite tell you exactly what to do but they say generally here are some things you should shoot to do here's how you can generally apply them ultimately it's not a get rich quick book it is you've got to figure some things out on your end you've got to make some very personal decisions for yourself you've got to do the soul searching feel figure out what your values are and if you apply these general things to it you're much better off than if you don't, just trying to figure it out on your own. But the, the first lesson, and this seems to be the first lesson with most self-help gurus, uh, Tony Robbins is another one. It seems like Tony Robbins is, it seems like he draws a lot of his ideas from Napoleon Hill. There's a lot of overlap between the two. I don't know how much of that is accidental I, I certainly don't think. I certainly think if you're going to be a self-help author, you should probably take your ideas from something else that has already worked for a previous generation. Tony Robbins is like Napoleon Hill. If Napoleon Hill were still alive and he was like had a lot of gusto and enthusiasm, you go hear him speak and get fired up. Uh, yeah, so I, I certainly don't. I I I don't like accusing people of plagiarism because really there's only so many ideas you're going you're going to find. And of those ideas only a few are going to be good. The thing is there there is nothing I am saying. There's nothing I would ever say that hasn't already been stated by somebody else, but the point is every generation needs the same ideas repeated, the ones that have value. Because unless somebody takes the ideas and purposefully passes them forward, they will die. So you, you really you should set out to plagiarize something that you find value in. You just have to contextualize it for the audience of your day. So I, I, don't hear me say Tony Robbins has stolen from Napoleon Hill, if he has more power to him, because I think Napoleon Hill was onto a lot of very good things. Anyway, first lesson is the definite chief aim. This is, I think, lesson number one. This is chapter number one in the Law of Success, and this says you, you have to figure out for yourself what you are going to focus on. What is the skill you're going to use in order to make money? What is the, the impact you want to have? You have to decide that and then go after it to the exclusion of not everything else in your life, but all other possible goals. I, I guess if you decide to be a plumber, then be a plumber. Be a really good plumber. That's a very hard thing to do. I have been trying to do this for a very long time. I'm very flighty. I get distracted easily. I've always tried to be more of a generalist. I forget where I heard it, but somebody said recently that really there is value in being a generalist because if you're a specialist, you, you're not going to like ever serendipitously stumble upon new ideas that are a result of fusing different fields together. It seems like there's a lot of insights, a lot of novel innovations that come from this sort of cross fertilization of somebody is studying some field that's completely unrelated to another, but you borrow ideas from one and apply them to another, and then suddenly there's this massive uh, enhancement or improvement in in some existing process. That might be the, the, the best thing to try to do in some contexts. I think you need a definite chief aim. But to the extent that you're specializing, I don't think you should focus on the subject matter of your one discipline to the exclusion of all others. I think you should, you should be tapping into different disciplines, drawing water from many, many different wells in order to figure out how you're going to irrigate your one farm. Creativity is nonlinear. I don't think if you're tackling a problem that anything is necessarily irrelevant. I should try and think of an example of this. If you're, I don't know. Okay, so if you're tackling, I think it's the question of supply chain logistics, you might be able to draw upon the algorithms that drive the routing of traffic on the internet to figure out how to make things more efficient. Something like quite as obvious as that. I don't know, but yeah, singular focus. I'm too flighty, and probably not in the in all the good ways. I want to do it all, man. Do everything. I do wish I like. I don't know. Like I, I can't imagine anyone is listening to this. I, I don't, I don't know if anyone. Really starts listening to a podcast that is just some person talking, kind of through things with themselves. I feel like I, I do wish that the conversation I had with my friend yesterday on the phone. Um, he, he's back in Detroit, which is where I'm from. Uh Just kind of in his house, in a large four bedroom house, he's got it all to himself. Just. Hold up in there. Um, no, like, we had a really interesting conversation. I like, I like the back and forth that comes from, like, let's, let's discuss these things, iron through the concepts, like, clarify what we mean to each other. You know, you, you have some sort of devil's advocate who's kind of saying, well, I don't understand the point you just made, or this, this point may be incorrect. This wasn't clear. Could you clarify this? The sort of discussions that go back, like the verbal ping pong, that's very interesting to listen to. Or if you're listening to a single individual lecture about something they know a lot about and they have something prepared. They're they're generally going through like a, a rubric of some kind. Like that's um that's more interesting. But I, I don't I definitely don't want this to be like I, I don't want to put the pressure on myself to like, I have to prepare a bunch of talking points and here are some specific examples and I'm going to go through that Like once there's that much structure this, this ceases to be like what I want it to be it's just I need to get ideas out of my head and I am kind of serendipitously looking to say okay if I give myself an open mic and just say go what is it that, that bubbles up out of the depths, Where does my brain send up? Is it interesting? Maybe not. I don't know. Don't want to go on at length about, I don't want this to be meta, a podcast about podcasting. <laughs> That's the easiest thing to do. Like the dreaded blogs about blogging. ah, yeah, so. <clears throat> But yeah, one of the things my friend mentioned was that there is. I've I've seen this on my end too. I actually eat, I actually eat a lot of broccoli. Uh, that's that's my carbs, as it were. And I, I actually have a grocery store in my building. Like this is unusual for most people, but I live in a city, very dense urban area. I, I can walk down the hall. Go down an elevator, and it it leads out into this little hallway, and there's there is an entrance to a Safeway, just right there. And between the hours of like eight and ten at night, the entrances to the Safeway that are on the street, are are closed. They stay open later, but they close them just to keep out the the riffraff, like the homeless people and other troublemakers there's, there's there's one door that they keep open that's kind of tucked back and you wouldn't necessarily find it unless you went looking for it it's really really handy in in the situation it would be very very convenient um i am slightly concerned because apparently 2 days ago there was there's an employee at a Safeway distribution center somewhere in the bay area who died of covid-19 In terms of the canary in the coal mine, that's a very concerning sign. Like, if if this gets into the grocery supply chain, I think there's that, that could make things ugly very quickly. Um, it's also not clear to me. Like, I, I go down into Safeway and things are quite picked over. Like, it's not like they're stocked up on things. It's it's not clear to me how much of that is people. Stockpiling because they're apprehensive about the future and how much of it is there's not stuff coming to the store from the distributors. I I don't know which if it's supply or demand uh, that's affecting this. Something that's a little concerning, but so it, I. Prior to the crisis, I used to go down and just fill up a basket with like 10, 12 bags of, of frozen vegetables, mostly broccoli. And it's, so Safeway now has this policy because people were stockpiling. Yeah, initially, I was unable to get any vegetables. It just they stopped being available because people were stockpiling. So now Safeway has this thing where you, you can only buy two bags at a time. And this is, I I certainly understand the rationale for this, but it's a little inconvenient because I'm trying to go, I'm trying to minimize the number of trips I take out of my place. And if if I want to get the same number, keep up the habits I was before, I, I now have to make more trips because of this limit. And so my friend was expressing concern about, you know, what does this say about rationing policies? Or are we going to get to a point where because people are stockpiling, things are so uneven that I guess it would have to be the government steps in and starts kind of determining how to ration these things. And of course, I... I, I I don't think that's a concern you can dismiss immediately. I think that's an interesting thing to think about, because what if that did happen? What if it became people are being irrational? We kind of need to, for the purposes of this pandemic, have, let's say, the government kind of determine how resources get allocated. And this is this is not so much a matter of like income redistribution, like. They're going to pay for the resources and distribute them to people who can't afford them. Although I, that's a separate question. More just like deciding who gets how much so that there's enough to go around. If that was even necessary, that on its own would kind of point, uh, the underlying problem there would be quite alarming. Like, so there actually is some sort of shortage on the supply side. And I think my friend's concern more was, like, if we were to institute such a policy, the government steps in and starts rationing, to what extent would that persist beyond the crisis? You you certainly have this pent-up sort of reservoir of cries for egalitarianism uh, on the extreme left on the political spectrum in this country right now. So it's, it's not a stretch to imagine that there would be some people clamoring for that to persist beyond. Maybe there should be some measure of fairness in how things are, are dispersed. My response to that was to say, well, I, I, I don't see us getting there. And I asked him what level of government he thought it would happen at and he said well certainly not the federal level. I was like well I'm not I'm much less worried about it then. like a couple of days ago the federal government said as far as when things reopen it's up to the discretion of the the governors of the respective states. you decide for yourself when's the right time. So i i think it would be the same thing if for, there was any sort of we're going to ration food or we're going to take food, like basically take supplies of food that could otherwise be sold to people and give them to people who can't afford them. That would happen at the state level. And so if it did persist beyond the uh, you know, the pandemic somewhere, it would be localized to that time and place. I don't see that being a, a pervasive danger? Um, certainly an interesting question, though. I, I, might be some aspect of that, that there is a danger I'm not seeing. Uh, but yeah, it's clear that it, it's difficult to know just how what level of paranoia is healthy right now. Like, I heard somebody say, I don't want to be alarmist, but, you know, it probably is not unhealthy to be worried a little bit. I probably could stand to worry more. I'm actually pretty, I'm not paranoid. I'm not worried about economic collapse. I'm not bracing for this sort of thing. Not a prepper. If you are any kind of prepper, you're probably in a pretty good situation right now. The uh, the Mormons are big into this. Like, like Mormons that live in rural areas, they tend to be all about just as a matter of course, you need to have like several months worth of food on hand just in case. That's actually not a bad idea. I think that's actually very, very smart. I, I think if I had a family, uh, and I had the space to do so. I'd probably have pent up, you know, food storage, like reserves of food for consumption. Maybe some, some other supply of clean water that was independent of uh, the municipal supply. Yeah, self-reliance, good stuff. <laughs> um i don't know uh it's getting away from this whole thing like i i actually live in a very dense urban area, but for just i happen to have a very large outdoor patio, which is unusual for where i live it's it's a very sizable thing actually, i will it's maybe twenty five feet by ten feet. Considering where I live, just how dense and urban this its it's unusual that I have that. It's, it's actually pretty nice because in the interim, I've been going out there and just walking in circles. Like I, I can put on a podcast or an audiobook and just, just walk in an endless figure eight for hours. And I actually get a lot of steps in. Um, but I, I remembered recently, I, I just discovered I, I, I own a drone one of those DJI phantom ones. I bought it uh, five years ago when I was in Santa Barbara because I had some, had some kind of half baked idea that I would be an aerial photographer for people selling real estate. So if you're a realtor and you have to like market a, a property I mean, In Santa Barbara, there are some very expensive properties that are very expansive. It's not a stretch to imagine that they might have needed a videographer to supply them with drone footage. It was like, I'm going to be that guy. I'll invest in this and start this business. I ended up moving away from Santa Barbara before I had the chance to do that. But I've had this drone gathering dust in my closet for the last few years. When I first moved to the Bay Area, I moved to uh, Mountain View. I was there for a few years and because of the airport uh, like a the Moffitt Airfield I forget what it's called down there, there there's there's an airport and because of that you cannot fly drones anywhere within the city so I kind of forgot that I owned it um, like this is actually my be an uh, interesting thing to like fly I should like charge this thing up and just kind of send it out do some reconnaissance and photograph the, uh, the bare San Francisco streets I'm very close to the Embarcadero it's a couple blocks I could send it down there and just have it capture footage of the Bay Bridge Drones are weird, like the just these giant slow-moving insects. I, I wonder about the days when we get to the point where like they're just they're just delivering packages. Is that happening anywhere? Is there anywhere in the country where drones are actually delivering things just as a? It's just normal. You just see these little like giant bugs fly by it's like being in like the cretaceous era and you see these massive arthropods just fly by it's it's creepy <laughs> yeah yeah okay what was i talking about oh yeah so yeah so i, I feel like there's i've heard some paranoid theories I'm not saying my friend is paranoid, but I've heard a lot of things like, what if this or that happens? I feel like that's one of the benefits of our system is that we have this, we do have this strong central federal government, but we also have state governments and city governments and the power is kind of dispersed between them. This is like the oldest argument Going back to the founders, like it was the Federalists and the Jeffersonian Republicans. It's like how much power should be invested in the in the monarch in D.C. versus how much should be in you know at, at the state level. Interesting the way that functions. That it's kind of that's kind of a check and balance on each other. Like so, you don't end up with a you don't end up with a monarch, and it's not even a monarch. I mean. If, you have the three branches of government, the Montesquieu idea, um, that are checks and balances on each other, and you you have most of the power just being delegated to in a very decentralized fashion. I always wondered how you 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 could you could make that work because if you're if you're a company, like if you're Walmart. Yeah, it is there is one headquarters, there's one brain of the entire operation. But you have several different centers operating autonomously. I guess in that case you need you need standardization across all of them. You want there to be a consistent experience. I guess you just you have an operating manual. You give that to all the places and they just follow it. It just trickles down. Squeeze all humanity out of doing the job in the first place if you're a Walmart greeter. It's like, this is your script, your cashier. Like here's, here's how you hit the buttons. Here's what you say. There's just no room for creativity in it. I don't know if you even know if you could go the other way. When I was in college, I do remember walking around, like looking, you'd pass like the head shops Stores that just have big glass bongs and papers and sort of thing, like stuff for potheads. Um, there was a few of those around town, like in East Lansing. I went to Michigan State University. I'd go down to Ann Arbor, and it would be the same thing, in their little downtown area, Western Michigan. It's always, it's always, they have, they're all independently owned. And I remember thinking like, yeah, I bet some, there's one company that like owns all of these. Like they just know that the people that shop here hate corporate franchises. And so they're smart enough not to just standardize the name. It's like, there's one, you know, guy in a business suit behind all of it. Like one group one headquarters, but they're just, they're all operating as if they were independent. I I wonder if you could do that. It'd be the same thing as like saying, okay, well, there's a central government, but you know, each, each individual state kind of operates autonomously, you know, do what you got to do. Here's a standard rubric, but you know, elaborate on it as you see fit. As befits your time and place. I'm, I'm sure franchises do that to some extent, but if you, if you were to bake that in, like let's say you don't have to standardize the whole thing. you don't have this pathological focus on making every single taco bell like emit the same odor to draw people in not all engineered down to the exact detail. Just you let the people who work there kind of ad lib. Anyway, yeah. So, stimulus. Invest in gold. This is what this is what you always hear, right? There's always. <laughs> there's always somebody saying like uh you should you should invest in gold because the market's going there's some problem it's like there there's always one character in a in a movie in a some some situation that's tense like I got a bad feeling about this like there're always that there's always that guy there's always a guy that says buy gold because it's good good for some reason I guess if there's like you see those commercials on t v they're like bring in your gold bring in your jewelry we'll buy it I guess if you see that, then you have to under there there must be something to that. You can, you can decide that a lot of people have independently decided now is a good time to buy gold. There must be something to that, like wisdom of the crowds, maybe. Crowds are also mad sometimes. Anyway, but yeah, so the stimulus package—I I wasn't aware of this—but so the, the stimulus was with two trillion dollars. They decide to allocate. Everyone gets a twelve hundred dollar check, and some businesses will get things as well. I, I don't know what the breakdown is. Uh, my friend looked this up. I haven't cross-checked it, but for for perspective, he looked into how much tax revenue was collected in 2018, and the number was something like $1.7 trillion. I I knew $2 trillion was a lot of money for a stimulus package, but I, I did not know what the extent of it was relative to what we might have access to our reserves. I don't know where that's going to come from—two trillion dollars. It's not like we—we we don't have that in the bank, and it's certainly not not like we don't carry a national debt as a country. But money's got to come from somewhere. I mean, it's—I it's, I guess if the government is going to start from the supply side, just increase the money supply, then you do get inflation, and and you do. Yeah, if you see the dollar devaluing, you'd be better off having your money in gold. and I, I I don't know if gold would be the best place to be. Gold would be better now relative to cash, but I I as much as we've seen the market plummet, I, I do think it will come back. So it probably is also prudent to put if, if you have cash to put it into. Uh, an index fund that tracks the market overall, the S&P 500. And that will go back up. It, it may continue going up and down, overall declining for the next two years. There will be a fallout from this, but it will go back up. And, you know, if the, if the stock market really does collapse, the, having... Cash in the bank is not going to help you much either at that point, so yeah I don't know i don't I don't know what the best investment advice would be right now now, in terms of funding, you know what I thought. And people have been talking about this for a while now. I I think I heard Trump mention this in his second or third month. There are very large companies in the United States which have figured out loopholes. They basically, when the revenue comes in from what they're selling, they use it to cover their costs. But the profit goes right overseas overseas through some kind of tax loophole in such a way that they don't have to pay taxes on it. I I think the most well-known example of this is Apple. People are aware that there's like billions of dollars in cash somewhere. I want to say Europe, but it's basically money that Apple has earned as profit. And it is just, it, it has not paid any taxes on it whatsoever. And that's just, that's just one example. Apple's easy to point to because everybody's pointing to Silicon Valley now, but but there, there's there's talks about like okay there are these massive offshore reserves of cash that have been amassed. The companies that earned them have never paid taxes on them. Uh, call those in. Retroactively say, like okay, you, you now need to bring those back and you have to pay what would have been due on them at the time. I I don't know how you would ever get that legislation through. I think vested interests would prevent any such thing from ever happening. There's a lot of money at stake there. But but if you're ever going to do it, if you ever would be able to sell the public on pushing for this and maybe getting buy-in from people saying, yeah, the country does need it, now might be the time. This might be the answer uh, some Somebody told me that if if you do that, then prices are going to go up i don't see how prices would go up It's not as though you're taking away from money that they're using as operating capital. Like, they're not tapping into this to cover their costs it's just it's just this growing. It's just this, this mosquito that hit an artery, and it's swelling up. It's it's definitely a surplus. But I don't know. That's it's a whole other whole other thing. Yeah. So anyway, rambling about politics for long enough. Back to tech. Where was I? What was I talking about? I'm not sure. I was in the middle of anything. I think I just have been jumping from lily pad to lily pad, different topics. Uh, yeah. So as far as where I go next, I've of course been using the interim to sit here and think. I've been an engineer for professionally for about 12 years now. and managed to eke out a comfortable living at it. I'm not even convinced I'm going to continue being an engineer. This gets back to the shift of balance of power. Of course, I, I was drawn to engineering originally because I wanted to contribute to what I saw as being an alternative to traditional options of living. You know, before we had evolved these complicated socio-technical systems and massive e-commerce sites, like they, they were just they were a small thing. There was an alternative to the other ways of living you hear like okay people are living on social media now and that's causing mental problems i hear this a lot i don't know if i buy this i'm not convinced it seems like there's there's a problem that's new everybody points to okay it's social media it's facebook you can blame instagram for this it's just a very easy scapegoat I think it's hard to establish causality here because you really don't have a control group. Is there there a group of people out there that are anything like us that are not on the internet? Would you go study the Amish and say, well, how are, there, there, there's so many other conflating factors that you couldn't find a group of people who's not using the internet and say, well, their mental health is less of a problem for them. I don't know. It could be. It could be that Facebook is making us all depressed and anxious, and who knows what. It's all FOMO, right? Yeah. I don't know. Anyway, I, I do. I I don't know exactly what the effect is. I don't know how negative it is, but I would guess there is some some negative effect. In essence, people are spending too much of their time and attention online, with too much time staring at their phones, acquiring too many things online. Like again. The overall balance is, I think, shifted too far in one direction. And so the question is, do I want to even continue being an engineer? Do I want to continue being a technologist? To the extent that I want to devote my time and effort to kind of shifting the balance around, kind of restoring order to the universe. Like, do I even want to go... There is the separate question of, do I want to be somebody who for the the next 30 years of my working life is just staring at a computer writing code there's a there's a very certain kind of individual that is capable of doing that that is like me 15 years ago i loved that idea sure i don't have to talk to people i can just sit here and stare at a computer and like write these little programs and it's fun I, I don't so much like doing that. I don't like being siloed in a cubicle, staring at a computer like that is, but apart from that, it's like, okay, well, I guess you could, you could go work somewhere that actually is having a positive impact on the world. Getting back to the food supply. I have thought about going to work for a company that works on making software for managing a farm some big companies doing that and nobody's even heard of them and they're not very well established because it's not a very common thing people are much less aware of b2b businesses but that is of course a very important thing anything you could do right now that would make farming more functional improve or streamline the processes is certainly a plus I, I think we need something more radical than that. I think we, we need I think we need probably massive improvements to agricultural techniques. Some part of that is probably genetics. Uh, it's complicated. Soil management. Agronomy would be interesting to know more about. It's not clear to me how technology could facilitate improvements here. So there is one. I think if I had all the money in the world and I could start any business that I wanted, here's here's one idea that I've thought of. I, I got very very interested in plants and uh, botany six years ago. I mean, my girlfriend at the time was like, "Okay, I know you develop interests in all kinds of weird things and you study them and like." But why plants, why the hell are you (laughs) reading all this? Like, why that? She just, it was something she couldn't understand. Uh, But somebody pointed out to me that like plants actually like talk to each other. And I don't mean like they, they speak, but they have a means of communicating. They have a means of sending messages, which is in the form of volatile compounds that they diffuse into the air to kind of send other plants a message. And it's, for example, um, if you have a plant and, and like a pest sits down and starts eating on the leaves, like chewing uh, the leaves, this this is obviously a threat. It stresses the plant and it will emit a toxin that's designed to dissuade uh, the feeder from continuing to eat it. Now what some plants will do is they, they will emit a volatile compound that will go into the air and other plants of the same species can detect it. And so they, they will become aware that there is a pest nearby that poses a threat to them. And so even without having been chewed on, surrounding plants can basically emit that toxin themselves, start producing it so that if a pest does show up and starts chewing on the leaves, they, they will basically head it off. It's a, it's a preemptive defensive move. You know, fortify yourself before you're attacked because it seems that there's, there's an enemy nearby. There's a predator nearby. Uh, and the, the plants will do this for different kinds of things. Like if, if there's water stress, they might release a compound. So the, the idea is, and this would be difficult and expensive to do. This is not something you do in your garage, uh, just on a whim, but you, you, you pick a few major crops. Uh, corn, rice, like the cultivars that are most common in the major civilizations around the world. Because you pick one to start with, which corn would be the most obvious one. What you do is you, you submit them to various stresses under controlled conditions. And you figure out what the volatile chemicals are. That they release under these different conditions and this is the challenging part you'd have to figure out how to develop a sensor that could detect these particular compounds that's where this goes way beyond me Um, but this is what we do. You know, somebody at some point says, okay, you want to measure the temperature. What is it that varies visibly with a change in temperature? Okay, mercury. Uh, just dump some of that into a very, very thin vial and figure out how to correlate it. Like the, the markings on the glass tube with uh, what you know the temperature to be. So it's a similar concept. You figure out there's some unique volatile compound that a plant will emit, some corn stalk will emit when a predator comes along or when a pathogen comes along. Plants are just as susceptible as we are to to bacteria and viruses. There is a pathogen, I don't remember if it's a virus, but it's called citrus greening. And that is basically Ebola for citrus trees. This has devastated the citrus trees in Asia. It, it has found its way to the United States. The last I heard it was, I think it showed up in California and Florida. This is going to be a problem. Like it, it's, it will eventually spread and we will lose most of our Citrus. We're going to have to come up with a cultivar. We're going to have to like basically come up with a genetically modified version of citrus that is immune to this citrus greening, or we're not going to have citrus. And I don't know if it's all citrus. Like That's a pretty broad. I don't know if it's just oranges. It's certainly oranges. I don't know if it's lemons and limes, and I don't know how far it spreads. You want to start Wandering the Linnaeus landscape, you know, it, it's hard to know where these boundaries lie, you know, genetically. What is affected by this and what is not? I don't know, but we're going to have to resort to GMO citrus if we want to have any citrus at all. Cause of citrus greening, but yes, yeah, so that's not, that's, this is another example, of pathogen, p- potato blight, um, powdery mildew. Now this this would be a good thing to apply to the marijuana industry. They' massive large indoor farms which are becoming monocultured as well It's like' it's just the clone of the same basically it's a genetic all of them are like genetically identical to each other because they've all been cloned. there's no like they get attacked by a pathogen some pest. You develop a sensor that can detect the compounds that they release when they are attacked and then you can instrument fields with them so you can detect when these things occur automatically. And this would one, you would need a lot of capital to do this. There's incredible invention risk here. Can you develop a thermometer that would be able to detect uh, these sorts of compounds, you know, develop a sensor? Could you actually develop it in a way that it, it's cheap enough that somebody would want to buy it? They would have enough economic benefit to them that they would pay you for it? And I, I guess it's a matter of how would I guess you could put the thing on a drone. Getting back to like the the, the big scary like robotic insects, I could just put it onto a drone. Have the drone patrol the fields. It could it could figure out where there's a pest. You could head it off. But you you'd have to start like selling to like the big like Tyson Foods. But ultimately you'd, you'd, you'd hope to make this sort of thing available to less developed countries where agriculture is the the way of life. You'd want to go, basically it's like the only economy. People are farmers and there is no other industry or no other real markets. They would stand to benefit from this the most, I think have the biggest impact on them, but they're also the people who could least afford this kind of technological solution. It's, I guess, similar to the electric car market. You have to start, you have to find the people with the purchasing power who can help support you with the intent of eventually making it more broad. That's what I would do if I were some fabulously wealthy billionaire, I'm just looking to try and make a dent in the world. Uh, I would focus on the food supply and I would start with the early detection of, yeah, some things that are attacking plants. Um, There's a very interesting company in, down in Santa Barbara, actually. This is one of the more interesting startups in Santa Barbara, really anywhere, but it's a bunch of chemists and what, what they, they developed a very thin organic coating you can put onto produce that will extend its shelf life. It's non-toxic. I think you can eat it. I, th- I don't think you have to peel it off, but you coat the produce in it and it, it basically keeps it from spoiling. I think that's fascinating. If I were, if I were a chemist or a biologist, if I knew anything about any of that, I would, I, I would consider going there. Uh, the company is called Appeal Sciences. That's a brilliant idea, though. It's um, good application of technology. How do we? Yeah wield our chemistry powers like superheroes. Yeah, but back to, back to the whole technology thing. So, you, you, I, I guess it's like you could move into <clears throat> the food farm industry, uh, look into community supported agriculture, whatever's going on in food. You could figure out how to use software skills to make that more efficient. One idea. There's certainly plenty of places you could take tech skills and apply them for a social good, but I kind of wonder if that's the wrong way of looking at the problem like I, I I am an engineer, so I've got this hammer, and my eyes are full of nails, so to speak, and I kind of wonder if that isn't just myopically trying to i don't know if that's really the answer we need right now. As technology seems to consolidate, as I've, I've been saying, like everybody orders everything on Amazon. And what, the direction I would like to see is more people opening independent artisanal shops, not embracing the race to the bottom. Let's not compete on cost. Let's make something novel that actually creates a sense of community locally and creates special things that you couldn't get online. That people are willing to pay a premium for I, th- I, th- I think I like that sociological implication too I-, I would rather not it not it be we need to order everything online because we that's the most convenient thing and that's a, that becomes the predominant option the, the, yeah there's a book on sociology that's often reference called the great good place, which I think is about 20 years old now. And the general theme of that was human beings need a place to go that is not work and is not their home, but somewhere they, they can go and just be not at those places. Like You go to a bowling alley and just hang out there. I, I do feel like we're kind of losing that. That was the reason meetup.com was founded, if I recall correctly. The, the founder of that in around around 2000, I, I think maybe because of that book, The Great Good Place, got a sense of, yes, sociologically there is a risk here. He saw society moving in that direction. Everything happens. Everything is going to start happening more online. And that will erode the sense of community. That's another perfect example of like, okay, you want to confront a non-technical problem. That's very much a social problem or a cultural problem. How could you use technology to do that? Of course, as a technologist, I'm limited. If I'm going to earn a living, the best option to me is to keep Doing technology, but thinking broader, uh, I just step back, get more perspective, widen the scope a little bit. Maybe it shouldn't be that we're looking to technology to employ solutions or employ technology to come up with solutions. I have been up for what? It's, it's actually 9.30. I've been up since very, I woke up around 3.30 this morning. Much earlier than I usually wake up. Had to kind of make that decision. Like, I I will wake up very early sometimes, like way earlier than normal. Just How long do you lie there in bed waiting to fall back asleep? When when do you just give it up and say, you know what, I'm going to go make the coffee. I'm committed. I'm going to commit to staying awake. It's just going to be a, today's kind of going to be a long one. So yeah, my brain is like is very scattered right now. I I have no idea how this sounds. <laughs> no idea how this is coming across. But I, I I'm trying to think broader. I think if you're going to, this is this is definitely getting away from technology. But, I I tend to be like. If I'm in a social situation, people where I used to work, people learn this very quickly about me. I'm just like standing around uh you know like I'm, I'm like tall and skinny so i'm just standing there like this this beam pole who's kind of like looking around i don't say a lot i'm living in my head a lot i think a lot but I, i'm the guy you don't want to ask a question of There's people are talking about some television show or something i'm only partially there listening to what's going on i've got some other thing in my head something really esoteric and weird that I'm trying to work through. And people look at me and they say, So what do you think? What do you uh, It's like I, I it's like I don't even want to say what I'm thinking. I I just I would rather they think I'm an idiot who is not thinking anything than to like actually open my mouth and say, well you know what I'm thinking about this and like they realize that what is going through my head is just that next level boring. I'd, I'd just rather be thought of as a dullard than somebody. And I'm certainly not, I'm not claiming that I'm smart. I'm not an intelligent person because the most intelligent people that I know are capable of thinking through deep problems, but they're also really good at socializing. They can, they can go into a group and just immediately connect with anyone. I don't have that skill. And that's an intelligence of a very important kind. So I'm, I'm not intelligent so much as I am. Focused. But anyway, I, I feel like if, if you are going to go deep and you're gonna like, okay, I'm gonna go into myself and kind of introspect a bit, this would be the time to do it. This is the time to soul search. When else would you do it? When, when would be a better time? And I don't actually know how to think about this, but I'm I'm certainly thinking. I don't know. So I have been reading Carl Jung recently, who's one of the patriarchs of the field of psychology. Um and he's I, I think he's the most interesting one. Um i, I guess with, with Freud it's all about sex. Everything is just sex. Like James Spader's character said in, in the episode of The Office. Uh Adler is all about power, everything is just Uh, Young seems to be the most, he offers the most challenging ideas that are hard to pin down, hard to dismiss. And they really arouse the curiosity more than they do prescribe any kind of solution. And one of the ideas he has that I really have been stuck on thinking about, psychology is very, very new. So I I guess if you look at the, at the the broader context, so like you have the Protestant Reformation in the early 16th century, okay. The Christian church kind of fractures into these two things and then Protestantism immediately goes to war with itself and its schisms and whatever centralized certainty there was there, it starts to come undone. About a 100 years later, you have like Francis Bacon describing the scientific method, like empirically observed natural laws. Let's not go by Plato and Aristotle who say that everything happens for a reason. And that reason is something theological or metaphysical. But really, let's put that aside and look at cause and effect in the world. Let's figure it out that way. People take this idea and run with it. It leads to the idea that, okay, how about we establish a government that is secular? It, it's not clear what the benefit is to the individual citizen if you have, uh, you know, the, the government being informed by the church. Can you really force people into being faithful by having a certain kind of faith? Is that a good idea? like like the writings of John Locke, that sort of thing. And then we established a, a secular country in late 18th century. It took a very long time for people to get there. It, it astonishes me how long it took before somebody said, well, let's give that a try. I, I guess it really is not that surprising, but yeah, there are two clubs. You have church and you have state. There is a firewall between them. That's, that's baked into the founding documents uh, of the United States. And then there's the French Revolution. They overturned the monarchy. They don't quite become a secular nation until, I think, 1905. But essentially, there's this, this dethroning of the church around the same time of the American Revolution. And a hundred years later, you have the infamous philosopher Nietzsche who's saying, "God is dead." Now, I remember reading that in high school. I remember people quoting that, uh, and it's I think it's misunderstood because Nietzsche certainly wasn't saying it in a celebratory fashion. He wasn't saying, "Yes, God is dead. Let us toast the champagne glasses." He, he was much more lamenting it. If nothing else, he was cautious. He was saying, I, I, this is going to have ramifications for us. Well, what are those going to be? In in the passage where he says that, he says, yes, God is dead because we have killed him. Who is going to wipe the blood from our hands? Who will judge us? If we, if we don't have a value system like that, that tells us right from wrong, up from down, where do we go? And it's around the time that Nietzsche is kind of making this observation as an observer, commenting on what's going on and not saying what he thinks should happen, that we invent psychology. So Carl Jung sort of says that this doesn't appear to be an accident. He doesn't think it's accidental. He thinks that organized religion has always been mankind's connection to the spiritual. And the spiritual is kind of the the, the the route man takes to understanding his own psyche. And that just as we are losing that, as the scales are tipping, we invent the science of psychology. Like we, we, he said we could have invented it much earlier, but we didn't need to. The problem was that there was a a gap, there was a hole to fill, and psychology fills it. And that certainly has always resonated with me, that idea, because it's not as though we have a singular psychology. We don't have a field of psychology. We have psychologies. I, I'm studying Carl Jung just on my own. I'm not a psychologist, but I find that interesting. And there are plenty of people who call themselves Jungian psychoanalysts. That's their school of thought. The therapist I see now doesn't follow that. I think she reads Jung, but she is, she practices with her patients a different school of thought. And I've talked to other people who are see a therapist, it's a completely different process. It's kind of like, all right, just whatever works, there's different denominations of psychology. It just depends on the way you would go to a guru or a spiritual advisor. They would sort of pick their chosen way of interpreting uh, whatever myths they wanted to adopt whatever whatever teachings they wanted to give you it's like you would go to a guru it's not you go to a therapist or a psychologist and they they apply what they think is valuable where you would go to you know the uh, catholic church go into the to to the confessional booth and just explain your sins in secret like now people go to therapy but it seems like there's a lot of overlap like with the function that psychology serves. It does overlap a lot with the clergy. So yeah, um I I think that the implications there are very interesting. I certainly think psychology is fascinating. Carl Jung is definitely broad and deep in its in his implications what he writes. And yeah, this is the time to start thinking about that. I I don't know if now is the time to look at what's happening with technology and kind of double down on that, the way things are going there. Or if we should just be trying to go a completely different direction. It's like the founder of Wired Magazine. Um, at, at some point, he was not that into technology. Like Even when he was founding Wired Magazine, I remember reading he, he, he wasn't really actively using computers. He, he's somebody who tends to eschew technology. Founder of a magazine exclusively about technology, but really didn't embrace it in his personal life. It may be a personal choice and not something you can institutionalize the way I'm talking about. But even if it is a personal choice, then it's something to think of. You know, what to what extent do you embrace technology, and to what extent do you minimize its impact on your life? And it's hard. It, it's like I was talking about sugar earlier. Like it, the what you eat is governed very much. By what the people in your social circles eat. You can only go outside of that so far. You can only like say, I am the lone vegetarian. Let's go to the restaurant. I want to. Uh, you can only do that so much. It's certainly easier now to be a vegetarian, but it, it, it is not easy to be someone who does not uh, socialize Online. I I I mentioned moving to the Bay Area, and since I've moved here in the past four years, I really haven't established a social life. Uh, it, it, it's largely because I I choose not to engage with other people online all that much. If I do, it, it's a means to some other thing. You you can call me. So we can arrange to meet in person. Text me so we can work some other offline thing out. I'm not having long threads of conversation with people on these chat apps. I had a coworker of mine ping me an email saying like, Hey, which uh, social chat apps do you use? I, I don't know. The WhatsApp? I don't even know what they are. I don't even, what, I'm not even entirely sure what he could mean by that. I don't think it's Facebook necessarily, but I don't know. I don't have any desire to know. Can I, can I give you my phone number? And we just, we just talk. So I guess I would like to see cultural and social change that makes us, yeah, as individuals gives us more options. I'd like to see more options. That is again, I, I think a way of restating the point of, I'd like to see the balance kind of spread out a little more. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know, but yeah, I do think now is the time to soul search. not great i actually am convinced i used to people would ask me about my dreams i was like really you, you want to analyze my like is that is that still a thing i thought that was just something new agers came up with like a hundred years ago that it seems like there's something to that actually like it, it, it seems like there is something running autonomously inside of all of us all it, does try to send us messages through our dreams as much as they must, might seem to be random nonsense. I think there's something there. I've, I've become sold on the idea, which I will not go into here. But if there ever was a time that you're like going inward, trying to analyze what's going on in your dreams, why the hell not now? Take a break from Netflix. You know, try, try thinking it through a bit. You got the time. I don't know, journal. I started off by saying you, you should podcast. Uh, yeah, yeah, this is well worth trying. Kind of addictive too. The, the first day I sat down to write voice memos to myself and I was like, maybe I can publish some of these. I ended up like losing track of time. Like It got dark. I forgot to eat. Like seven hours went by and I was still just, just Sitting in my on my couch, wandering around my place, I had I'd completely forgotten that I had other things to do. Just felt good to talk things through. I, it, it's a good time to do that, or sit down and write, create. I don't know. I do wonder how much this is based on skewed perspective on my part. I like like I said, I've been in Silicon Valley, Bay Area, now in San Francisco for the last four years. So I, I am kind of immersed in it. I I remember when I, I first came to this area and I was interviewing around at different tech companies for jobs i coming across some nutty things. Like I had to. Somebody had an iPad rigged up in one building to like control the elevator. And for, for some, you think that would that would make it easier. It was just it was something you couldn't figure out. People were struggling. What do I swipe? What do I touch? Just to summon the elevator and get it to take me to this floor. We're supposed to like make things more efficient. Like it, I. It's just weird. Like you, have, you have to go in and like say hi. You know, there's a receptionist sitting at a desk. I'm here to interview, and she's like, I'm not saying anything, just points you to an iPad that's mounted on the counter in front of her. They go, what do I do here? Like Sign in. Let the person know via the iPad. Just all all of these like weird applications of technology, like inserting it where you wouldn't think you need to put it I don't know. I remember when I was 10 or 11 I had this phase where I wanted to be an inventor get really excited about like I saw like Rick Moranis in uh, Honey I Shrunk the Kids like making stuff in his attic I was like I want to be that guy (laughs) I want to build cool gizmos So like I came up with this idea. I had this little like, um, conveyor belt. You could turn a knob and it would like, it was like, uh, go around in a circle. And I was like, okay, here's what I'll do. I'll, I'll mount that in front of my alarm clock and I'll tape a rock to it. And then when my alarm goes off, I have to like turn this crank and it will move the rock up and the rock will go up and over as it's coming back around to loop, it will hit the snooze button on the alarm clock. Like this Rube Goldberg solution that you wouldn't need. It would just be easier to reach over and hit the damn button. I remember telling my aunt at the time about this. She was like, that's the wrong way to think about this, man. Like Your job as an inventor is to make Make a hard thing easy, not an easy thing hard. I never forgot her saying that. This is I feel like this is what I've found with people trying to cram technology into different corners of, like, a, the, just going through your day-to-day routine. Let's put the rock on the conveyor belt, and you have to, like, crank it to, like, hit a button. I don't know. I personally don't think I'm nuts. I think, I think things start. It's like sushi. It started in California, but eventually you got people in Boston, you know, going getting it. It's I. I, I feel like it's prevalent enough now. Like tech is just slowly creeping into our lives. It's probably not like you can get rid of that. I'm certainly not saying we should. I'm saying balance even if i don't know how we get there all right well i think i i think i have probably rambled about all of this for long enough technology pandemic crazy time currently living in living through. This is this is this is history. This will be talked about for years and it's happening right now. It's quite surreal. Anyway, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what the future brings. If there ever was a time to sit around and speculate or prognosticate on it at great length verbally, now is the time to do it. We all have the time. I have enjoyed this if for some reason you are a human being out there who has listened to all of this this far, Thank you. I hope you have enjoyed it. Uh, Wherever you are, I hope you are healthy. I hope you and yours are all healthy, remain healthy, and that you come out of this, uh, the other end of this pandemic, healthy and well, and you get back to some semblance of normal soon. Uh, This is Jim signing off. Be well. Cheers.